0: Hello and welcome to the Spirit Guide Society podcast. My name is Pedro Shanahan and I'm your spirit guide. Today we have the honor of being able to talk to Jeff Arnett, master distiller from Jack Daniel's, biggest selling American whiskey in the world. Jeff, this is not our normal whiskey society format. I have to say we've never had you out to 7 Grand to be able to do a whiskey society cuz it's really a big job being the biggest whiskey in the world, I'm sure. But we've actually sent our crew out there and bought some single barrels for you guys. In fact, Evan, our former manager in the bar Jacklope, which is our little sipping library in the back of seven grand, bought a single barrel of the, or selected for the bar, uh, a single barrel of the Jack Daniels. And it was, we asked it not to be bottled down to proof. And you guys sent it to us at 138. And it was one of the most wonderful whiskeys we had last year. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's that's one of my favorites, actually. Um, You know, I I called that the distiller's privilege, you know, being a master distiller here. I was one of just a handful of people that could have a a warehouse unlocked. I could go to the top floor with a, you know, a drill in hand uh, and a bottle and a a glass and just take the whiskey out of the barrel in its purest form and sample it that way. Uh, And up until we offered the barrel proof single barrels, uh, nobody unless they had gone up in a warehouse with me to do that, they had not had. Uh, what I considered that to be a privilege uh, of tasting the liquid in its pure state. Uh, but I, it would always stun me, um, you know, as I was going up and, and sampling out of lots, whether, you know, I, it would be somewhere between 128 proof and all the way up to 138. That's sort of on the high end of the range for us. Yeah. Uh, but I always stunned at how smooth it was. And uh, just it, it's stunning, actually, that you can deliver that high proof uh, into a bottle and be that sipping smooth at the same time. Yeah, uh, but that's I, I call hard, the barrel though. proof. I tell people all the time. I know sports are kind of dead in the water for right now, uh, during this the pandemic, uh, all the stay-at-home orders. But I tell people, you know, once you're back out and about, and if you're a flask carrier, um, to me the the single barrel barrel proof is the perfect flask whiskey. Oh, that's um, true. The problem with any flask is it's never going to be large enough. So you want to get a. <laughs> You want to get as much bang for the space you have, uh, so one thirty-eight <laughs> goes a little further than an eighty or ninety proof does. It's
0: simple math, folks. Simple yeah, it is. Math.
1: it is maximizing the footprint there.
0: Well, you know, I always like to think I've got two pockets, so why not two flasks?
1: <laughs> yep. The more
0: the merrier. It's yeah, but I, but I
1: absolutely in. love I absolutely love the uh, the the single barrel barrel proof from Jack Daniels. I think it's uh, it's pretty stunning
0: yeah absolutely uh we love it we love it very much uh but what i was saying is normally we do our whiskey societies at least once or twice a week at seven grand and they happen in the evening we have our guests come in and they do a tasting with the master distiller but right now it's a little after 7 a.m out here in california you're just starting work (laughs) yeah it's it's a little after
1: nine here but of course we start early here you know tasting is a part of manufacturing it that's one of our major quality checks We do. We do have some instruments. You know, there's there are some technologies that have been developed that help you regulate the process. You can check for your uh, component alcohols that that kind of define your thumbprint uh, as a unique whiskey thing that, Mm -hmm. you know, when our yeast goes in and takes the starches and sugars and makes alcohols, it doesn't make just ethyl alcohol, which gives us something a character beyond what vodka would have. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we can check for that uh, using a machine that's much more precise than maybe the. The human senses could provide us, but at the end of the day, nothing's going to tell you what something tastes like.
0: That's right. Um, Gastrospector you, you, chromograph can detect yeah. up to like the million parts, you know, they, it deals in parts per million, but the human nose will be able to put those nuances together in yeah. a way that only humans can do because they, they come out of memories. They come out of organic experiences as opposed yeah. to anything you've could feed into a computer. Yeah.
1: And what you'll see is that you'll analyze two samples that that at least on paper have a similar footprint or a fingerprint of alcohol. Um, But when you nose and taste them, they're distinctly different. You know, so there are things that those machines don't tend to register uh, and to quantify for you. So it's important for us to do both. Uh, We Mm -hmm. have about 600 or so production employees here and 100 of them serve as official whiskey tasters. Wow! Uh, like I said, at the distillery, we taste and and nose the product every single day. Uh, in bottling, it's more like once a week, and then on demand um, when we need to check something.
0: And but, that's, uh, we have
1: official whiskey tasters that we train, who are our employees, and they're they're besides myself. They, these are the stewards of the brand. I call it. You know, yeah. been making Jack Daniels here for a long time, and you have a handful of families that have been involved with it for multiple generations, uh, and wow. we want to include them. And, and basically saying, is this Jack Daniels or not? You know, I, I sign off on of what those standards should be. Uh, but then I use a lot of people um, to make sure that the process
0: stays in check every day. Wow. Now, when those people come to work, uh, do you have like a little like a triangulation test that is going to see if their nose is off on that particular day? Or how do you screen your tasters before they walk into work every morning? You
1: know, no- normally when we're doing. Um, well, first of all. We, what we want our tasters panel to, to resemble for the most part is the the drinking public um, so we have a hundred people and some of them I would tell you are, are very uh, sensitive uh, they, they tend to smell even the most subtle nuances of you know different aromas uh, they have uh, some people have heightened sensitivities on the palate uh, but many of them I would say are, are more average so we're not necessarily looking for tasters to be you know some hypersensitive, you know, sensory group. Uh, there, there are times that if you're, you know, we ha- we use some carbon to treat Jack Daniels. That, that way the product maintains clarity when it goes through temperature changes because we ship from Lynchburg to all over the world. So it sees extremely warm temperatures. It's it sees extremely cold temperatures as it goes into market. And you don't want the product to cloud up. Um, uh-huh. So the, the carbon, the carbon shouldn't alter the character of the product at all. But if you're talking mm. to your carbon supplier and they're saying we're going to make some subtle changes in how we produce the carbon you're going to use, um, then we're going to test what we're using today and what they're you know, suggesting that we would move to uh, as part of our filtration process. So I'll bring in the, the most sensitive pallets I've got. You know, if I have two batches produced with different carbons and I, I'm not necessarily going to expect them to be different. But if there's even a subtle difference, I'm going to want to know. So I'm going to rely on the, maybe a dozen or so of the panelists that we've tested that we know have very low thresholds of detection. They they seem to smell and taste everything because uh, I'm going to want to know uh, if there's a minor difference. Most of the time, though, we just want to know, are the batches consistent? Will they be viewed mm-hmm. as consistent in the eyes? Because there's a lot of variability when it comes with with grains and barrels and seasonalities and making product that, that takes years to make. As they go through their cycles, you'll see some some subtle nuances, I call it, uh, that happen in the process. We, we kind of, uh, our, our desire is that the consumer doesn't see or taste those. You know, we want every bottle of Jack Daniels to be the same. Every bottle of Gentleman Jack to be the same. The only one that we're okay with varying from bottle to bottle and barrel to barrel is the single barrel um, because that is the nature of the product. We want people to to explore those nuances that come from individual mm. barrels. But there, there, are, there are groups of people that I'm going to rely on. Uh, that I want to know even the most minor of differences. I want to tease those out and figure out if there's a difference. But most of the time, if we're just making batches, you, you were talking about having like some type of a triangle test. That is what we do. Um, mm. So We have a, a triangle panel. So we'll take a batch of old number seven Tennessee whiskey that we're producing today uh, and put it in two glasses and we'll take a batch that we made two or three years ago and we'll put it in the third glass and we'll mix them up on the table and, and the question we pose to, to every taster is not which is better or worse, but which sample is different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if the panelists can't find it, then you assume that they're the same or, the, or any differences are insignificant. Uh, and, we're, and like I said, we're very good at that. Um, we can take bottles of Jack Daniels Produce years apart. And our tasters have a harder time finding the odd sample than they do if we go and buy a compete like a vodka brand. You know, vodka is not supposed to taste like anything, so it's it's sort of its standard of identity is to try to be what I call nothing, and 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 you know, and vodkas often argue over who tastes the most like nothing. Yeah. Um, that's, that's considered to be you know uh, uh, indicative of purity. That's right. Um, so so if your if your target is nothing, you would think that that's a fairly absolute target, and it should be easy to hit. But we we can buy vodka brands that are uh, from bottles that are produced years apart. And and have an easier time smelling and tasting the differences in their batches than we do with our own whiskey. So that's wow. pretty good. That's pretty yeah, good that's if really you good. take all those all those nuances, all those different sources of flavor that we have, and 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 get them under control, and then deliver a, a bottle year after year, batch after batch, uh, to be the same.
0: So you've been master distiller there, Jack Daniels, for fourteen years. Is that right?
1: For twelve. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I joined Jack Daniels uh, 19 years ago, back in 2001. Uh, I served as the quality control manager here for my first seven years. Um, in addition to that, I'd been here for about five years when I took over all the processing and warehousing operations. So I was quality control plus uh, managed the area where all the barrels were stored, uh, and then had had responsibility over uh, the consistency of batches on Gentleman Jack and Old Number Seven, also. Defining the range of what was allowable to be single barrel from here because it doesn't have an absolute standard of identity. Uh, So from the lightest to the heaviest, you know, the least color to the darkest color. um, I was one of two people uh, that tasted every single barrel that went to market for five years. Um, So liver
0: must be huge.
1: Well, but but tasting tasting isn't drinking. Uh, You know, you literally we cut it down to like forty proof. We put it in mouth, you kind of rinse it around, and you spit it out, and then you're just looking. that that kind of minimizes fatigue. It minimizes carryover if you'll cut the proof down. Uh it does soften some of the notes on the whiskey though. So you have to pay attention uh mm. when you go at that proof. But you can taste 40 or 50 samples over the course of a day, uh, and you really haven't consumed much alcohol. Uh very, very little. Whatever just remains just kind of clinging to the the, the mouth is, is all It
0: absorbs get. through the yeah, skin yeah. in your mouth.
1: <laughs> yeah, whatever it is it, but you know, I, I would say I, I've walked away from from fairly large panels. Um, and felt like I had absolutely nothing. Um, so that's, but, but you were asking me, you know, do we, uh, do people, uh, tests coming in before we kind of green light them to be tasters for the day? You can do things that kind of minimize, uh, people coming in and having an off, you know, it's sort of an off moment. Uh, a lot of our panels, when we set them up, are going to happen around 10 AM in the morning. Uh, what that typically does is it gets people past breakfast uh, allows them to somewhat clear up their palate. We ask them to not you know, drink any strong drinks, coffee, smoking cigarettes, anything like that, that, you know, are going to alter the palate uh, that you refrain from doing that on a day that we're going to m- do a master panel. But catching people after breakfast and before lunch, when you know that their their palate should be about as clean as possible uh, at that point. Uh, and then and then. You know, one or two people calling something out isn't necessarily going to change our our opinion of something. We're looking for um, our master panel would be uh, a dozen people. That would be one of the smaller panels Um, for statistical validity. uh, Most of our panels run 30 people or more Um, of the hundred tasters. Yeah. Of the 100 official whiskey tasters that we have, 50 of them work at the distillery. So they're looking at the raw distillate off the still. They're not necessarily training their palate for all the nuances of the barrel being involved. Uh, at this point, the the distillate's still pretty clean. Uh, nose is, I would tell you, much more important on the raw distillate than the taste is. Um, because we're expecting before and after charcoal mellowing some very distinct differences of aroma. Uh, and it's easier mm. to detect the aroma differences than it is the, the taste. Because uh, you're coming off at 140 proof there as well. So that, yeah. that kind of shocks the palate. Now, after you, after you introduce the barrel uh, into the equation, of course, all the, all the flavor points and all the things you're looking for are different. So 50 work in new whiskey in and, and, and the white dog area, if you will. And then we have 50 that work in the mature area. Uh, so they've trained their palate to know the differences between you know, what a Gentleman Jack bat should taste like, what should its key characteristics of flavor be, what should an old number seven Tennessee whiskey be, what should a single barrel, what's the acceptable range there, Um, And by having 50 people participate in each panel, uh, even if people are off shift on vacation or something like that, if I can get at least 30 data points uh, collected uh, on a panel, uh, then I've got a fairly strong um, statistical significant difference that I can uh, create from that. Every person up till the 30th is is critical. After 30, you're just washing a lot of glassware and you're not gaining. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. But it's a
0: huge responsibility to keep the biggest whiskey brand in the world in the same flavor profile day after day. So I, that's really intense. That's a lot of people. How often does the 30 to 50 person panel convene every day?
1: Every day. Um, we, we basically set up the samples at the distillery, but everything we're distilling uh, is going to be placed in there every single day. Uh, what you'll if you go in on a panel what's typically in the lab in the sensory panel area uh is the stuff we've distilled today and yesterday so you don't have even though we're tasting the distillate of every single day you can come in on monday wednesday and friday um and and basically you know there, you might be going through two sets of samples that represent yeah two, yeah two days production um but we ask people if they're on the tasting panel to to participate at least at 80 percent um so we don't have panelists that are hit or miss. Uh, And it sounds cliche to say it, but to be a good taster, you need to taste often uh, that you provide the most value if you're very consistent in doing it. Uh, So at the distillery, it's every single day Um, down in bottling. It's more on demand. If we get a complaint on a batch, which we seldom do, um, you know, every one million bottles uh, that ship out of Lynchburg for Jack Daniels, we might get two or three comments back, uh, which is an extremely, extremely low incident rate of dissatisfaction.
0: Yeah, that would almost lean in the direction of, of kind of non-data in a way because it's like that that's bound to happen for any number of reasons, you know?
1: Well, yeah, about, about half of the comments that we get on Jack Daniels are taste related. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other half will come from a myriad uh, of different things. I mean, up to and including people writing us to saying that they drank a whole bottle uh, and they didn't feel so good the next morning.
0: Yeah, um, you know, so he's like, I'm not really <laughs> sure what to do with
1: that complaint because that's exactly <laughs> what I would expect. You know, if you drank the whole bottle and you didn't necessarily feel a little bit green under the gills of the next morning, that would probably be a problem.
0: Uh, <laughs> that's but, a whole lifestyle choice sure at that point.
1: You know, you're still looking at if, if you can get bottles back from from customers who said that you know something didn't seem right about it. Get batch numbers on it. You'll research it. But that's a that is in. I had worked for three different brands before working for Jack Daniels. I had worked for a, a large food company, but I would worked in coffee and juice drinks and also in salted snacks. Um, but to, to get only two or three comments back on every 1 million bottles or 1 million units or opportunities uh, was about as low a number as I had ever seen achieved. And yeah. um, coming from a quality background, I, ha- I have an engineering degree, but coming in, my, my focus here was quality. And, you know, the pinnacle of quality for most processes is, is to be called Six Sigma uh, level capable. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're a Six Sigma operation, it means that um, you don't miss the mark very much. It means you have very little variability in the process. And it also means that your process centers up well on its target. And, and said another way, what, what it tells me, if Jack Daniels only gets two or three comments on every one million bottles, then we have done an excellent job of setting an expectation with a customer and then delivering on that. Uh, we don't right. have a lot of variability and, and people know what to expect from us and they most of the time they're going to get it. Uh, it's rare that they don't. But uh, two or three defects per million units is six sigma level performance. And very few companies reach that. And it was I was lucky when I came in here as the quality control manager for Jack Daniels. They were already performing at that level. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't say I couldn't say that there weren't things that we could brush up on and make better and make stronger, make more robust. Uh, And those are the things I worked on. But there's clearly uh, the wheels had not come off the operation. There were no fires to put out. It was just like our brand is growing. We just want to make sure that as we grow, we do it thoughtfully, uh, that we don't lose a step that that people when they're buying the bottle um, don't don't see that. You know, Jack Daniels. Yes, it's a larger brand, but we take care of every single bottle. You know, we we win our we win our next consumer the same way small brands do, and that is by one That's bottle right. at a time and earning that trust. Uh, and and I think we you know the numbers support that we've we we've earned our place uh, in the whiskey category by delivering uh, on a promise of quality.
0: That's what we always say at Seven Grand. We, you know, we we've got four locations now. We've got a Seven Grand in LA, one in San Diego, one in Austin, and one in Denver. And we're we like to be very welcoming uh, to all of our guests, but also to the brands because we want, you know, we love whiskey of all different types, but you know, sometimes we've got some rare stuff on the shelves and people will come in and they'll have a very specific thing that they're going to do with the whiskey bar. They're going to spend some money on something that, you know, is high level Mark. And sometimes people make, you know, comments about stuff that's more common. And I'm always like, Hey, Listen, there's a reason why that's the best-selling whiskey in the world. So don't tell me it's not good because yeah. they're clearly doing something right. You know, yeah. it's like, you yeah,
1: know, you I bro- would say this. You know, of course, I, I, I've stood in front of many groups, from people who love the brand as much as I do, to people who are very skeptical uh, of the brand. Um, and and I would say there maybe there were some legitimate criticisms of Jack Daniel's. Um, you know, we have a grain bill that's very unique. You know, I, I think it a unique, a very unique character. We're low in rye. We have a, um, a proprietary yeast culture that kind of drives out a banana note. But definitely Jack Daniels is sweet and oaky uh, as the range that I describe us to have. Uh, where bourbons introduce more rye, they have a little bit more of a, a peppery and spicy note. So the, I think the differences of Tennessee whiskey and bourbon go maybe a little bit beyond just the charcoal mellowing process. It also, uh, it, the, the, the grain bill. Uh, is influencing what people think of uh, those two as different categories uh, at the same time. But uh, yeah. um, but if you like sweet and oak, Jack Daniels had it in spades, and we were going to deliver it to you in a lot of different forms. You know, Gentleman Jack sort of on the sweet end of the range, single barrel being more on the oak end of the range, our old number seven trying to strike a balance of those two characteristics. Uh, and if you were looking for spice, we didn't offer much in that space. You know, part, part of, you know, being master distiller over the last 12 years, it's been a good time to be a master distiller in the American whiskey category because it's been a very active time. You know, we, we were a sleepy category for a good two or three decades, but that all changed back in the late 2000s, around 2010. It seems like this category woke back up again and you've got more people exploring whiskey. They're looking, they want to, they're, they're open to trying different brands and different grain bills, which, you know, allowed us to make our first dry whiskey, uh, at least in the modern era. And to me, it's a, um, it's not necessarily for the current Jack Daniels fan. You know, Our rye was was intending to reach out to people that were were kind of loyal to other brands who had tried mm-hmm. Jack Daniels and tried everything in the Jack Daniels range before and said, you know, there's just nothing there for me. And I always say, you know, before you completely give up on us as a brand, try the rye. Uh, maybe that, maybe that's going to give you what you were missing uh, when you Definitely. tried it before. But going from 8% rye to 70% rye on a grain bill makes a huge difference in character. Uh, and it's still a, a high quality uh, produced liquid, mm-hmm. uh, but it's different uh, for sure. And you know, if you try our Tennessee rye, or if you try our rye single barrel, I, I love our rye single barrel. Yeah, rye me too. Like, I like barrel. I like barrel character to be present on a product. Uh, our Tennessee rye is very grain centric. Uh, it's very peppery and spicy. It's it's very grain prominent. It's great for cocktail making. Um, but if you're looking for a rye that's peppery and spicy, but also kind of settled enough just to go you know, maybe one, one rock in a glass uh, with liquid uh, is, which I'm typically a rock drinker. The single barrel rye from Jack Daniels, I think is really worth a try uh, for people who maybe gave up on Jack Daniels uh, years
0: ago. Yeah, you um, are clearly someone who's passionate about whiskey. You, you grew up in Tennessee, right? You, you're from Jackson and and then you got a degree in industrial engineering and took over the distillery. And what, I mean, you, you stewarded the creation of the Jack Daniel's rye. That's a huge deal, right? That was one of the things that you changed in the company. as you brought out this rye. What other marks are you proud of in the, in the time that you've been there that you've added to the the Jack Daniel's line?
1: Yeah, and, and I and I clearly won't take sole credit for the rye. You know, I'm I have I'm quickly approaching uh, 20 years of experience in the whiskey uh, business, and I, prior to that, I had. Uh, about ten years of experience in food and beverage manufacturing. and I, and there were things there were certain things that I learned like when I was in coffee. you know how you can take individual beans that you know have different uh, characteristics of flavor and acidity and body, um, class and grade uh, beans from different countries of different styles, and then think about putting them together so that they're more balanced and complete, more complex as a unit than they were individually. So some of that came into the thought process of if we were going to alter the grain bill of Jack Daniels, what would we do? You know, it's like looking at rye as a category. You can be 51 percent rye and call yourself rye whiskey, uh, and then you saw some already going into the marketplace that were like 95 percent. And there's mm-hmm. something to be said for both of those points. You know, 51 mm-hmm. percent isn't a huge departure from some of the high rye bourbons. It maintains enough corn that its character it moves the needle upward. Uh, but a lot of your 51 percent rye grain bills are going to come off uh, more like bourbon. Yeah. Uh, when you go, to, when you go to 95% rye, you're kind of fully committed at that point. So I call it sort of like, it's like a one, it's like a one bean coffee blend, you know, whatever that bean is, it's going to dictate your character. And that's what a 95% rye does. So, uh, it's bold, it's spicy. Uh, but I describe it as being a little bit monolithic because you don't have other grains, um, to round your character out. You've just got pretty much one grain in one barrel. Uh, and that's what's going to drive it. So, um, we looked at it and said we could do either of those two options, but then we got to looking at it and said, you know, but there's this whole middle space between 51 and a hundred uh, on, on the rye percentage that we could explore. And we felt like no other brand had done it up to that point, uh, at least no no larger brand. So we're like, that's the space we want to look at. Um, so we, you know, part, part of the mellowing process, it seems to work best uh, when there's some corn uh, in the grain bill. Um, corn is a sweet grain, but when you sour mash and ferment it, it tends to mask its sweetness with some bitter elements. Um, that's what mellowing we found works to, to remove. Um, so when we started making the rye, we had enough corn in there that the mellowing process would still work on it. Um, you know, I always say, you know, making rye to me, the challenge of it was being big and bold without being harsh or edgy. Uh, and, and that's a, a balance you're trying to strike. So we did it using a little bit of corn. Uh, so bringing, you know, coming off a, a 95 or 100 percent ride, bringing it down to 70, leaving enough corn in there that mellowing still works. Uh, we could strike a balance where, it, you know, hopefully it makes a great cocktail if that's what you want to do, but it doesn't have to be in a cocktail to be tamed. Um, so that's what we had hoped to achieve. And I think it went really well. Uh, I, I was very proud in how it turned out, but I, I give credit to a lot of the People here, 20 years of experience with me. I, I'm working with people that have 40. Uh, yeah. So, I, you know, I kind of <laughs> I, I lean on my elders here quite a bit, too. I'm smart enough to know that I don't know everything. Uh,
0: right.
1: so, but, you know, I, I often called, and it sounds like a little bit of a bragging statement. And I don't want it to, to come off as boastful. But, you know, I think Jack Daniels is the most complete whiskey maker on the planet. And I just simply when you look at what's required to make one uh, who is involved uh, in that. We're the only major whiskey company that makes barrels, and it goes all the way literally to the forest. So we have log buyers, we have stave mills, we have cooperages. The barrel is all of your color and over half of your flavor. And it's often not talked about uh, with some whiskey manufacturers, and it's simply because they're sourcing a commodity barrel, I call it. They, they, they've gone to different manufacturers of barrels, and they've negotiated a price and a quantity for it, uh, and that's how they, they source them. Uh, But with us, it's it's a little bit more important than that. We want to know where the wood has come from. We want to know it was seasoned properly. To be quite honest, it is hard to look at a barrel once it's assembled uh, and tell a good barrel from a bad barrel. Uh, You know, a lot of that was in the details of how it was manufactured and handled up to that point. Uh, Unless the barrel has, you know, sapwood, insect damage, crack staves, there are certain visible symbols that there were corners cut
0: uh, Mm -hmm. in
1: in manufacturing a barrel. But often a barrel that's going to perform poorly and a barrel that's gonna be a superior or an optimal barrel, they look a whole lot alike from the outside uh, so mm-hmm. but Go there's levels in the details there, but, but by doing all that with our own employees, we take control of one of the biggest unknowns in whiskey making so you know we've we've grown our own corn crop down the street uh we we manufacture everything for ourselves, we don't source liquid, we don't sell liquid on the side, so everything is made by us for us. Uh, We have proprietary yeast cultures. Um, We, um, you know, make our own barrels. So if you think about all the components that have to come together to put to put together this puzzle, that is a whiskey. You know, Jack Daniels is the most complete when it comes to having its hand in all the different points of manufacturing, uh, which gives us, you know, it gave us the ability. We talked about rye as one of the innovations that have come out during my time here. Uh, But we've also done things with barrels. You know, we've mm-hmm. made maple barrels, toasted them, came out with the number 27 gold liquid, which is just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, uh, I, I call it a very complex but easy to swallow uh, whiskey. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a very full in the mouth, but when you swallow it, it's not. there's nothing difficult about it. Uh, then if you want something big and bold, longer finish, we've got Sinatra, you know, where we've toasted and charred. We have a proprietary toasting process, but by grooving the barrel out, doubling the surface area. It's almost like creating wood chips uh, and adding them into the barrel, but they've been produced by the very barrel uh, that they're in. Uh, So it's still, it's, it's a barrel intact, but it's been altered enough. It's 40% darker than a barrel you don't do that to, and it makes a huge difference in character.
0: The flavor profile is really way, way, way different. You've got your Sinatra Club uh, patch I do. on the back Yeah, there. I'm
1: The Jack Daniels Country Club here I'm wearing today. <laughs> um, oh. But yeah, but you know, so we've been able to work, we've done some flavors because I think it, it helps people that are still approaching the whiskey category, but, but maybe aren't quite whiskey drinkers yet. It allows them to kind of come in and identify with your brands. So honey reached a whole new consumer for us. Uh, It took even loyal whiskey drinkers who didn't drink whiskey in every single occasion of life, and it gave them an option. Uh, You know, i described Mm -hmm. that when Tennessee Honey came out as, you know, it was a a nice dessert, uh, cordial, you know, sort of an after-dinner pour. Mm -hmm. You you put ice cream, chocolate, uh, and put this as a a side to that just to sip on, and it went really well uh, in the dessert occasion. And most people didn't drink Jack Daniels as an after-dinner drink uh, necessarily. Right. Uh, But, you know, the cinnamon, you know, for the shot occasion, the apple with some nice cocktails uh, following it. So we've come out with three flavors that I think have attracted a whole new audience, a whole new fan group for Jack Daniels. Uh, We've worked on barrels. We've worked on grain bills. We for people that were saying we want more proof, you know, we want the purest form of your spirit. We've come out with that barrel proof single barrel, which is my absolute favorite of our lineup today. Uh, So we try to be thoughtful as we've innovated that we're not just kind of playing one thing over and over and over again. We've kind of dabbled in grains and barrels and flavors and proofs and giving people what they want. And then in addition to that, uh, we've got the Tennessee Tasters line for people who make the trek to Lynchburg and are looking for something unique that they won't find in their own store uh, where we've created barrel reunion projects. You know, we make a lot of barrels and we use a lot of barrels and we sell them. Uh, to other industries to use, you know, we recalled some of those back after they had used it and finished out in them, uh, and had a reunion for the barrel. Nice. Here we've done it with an oatmeal stout beer. We've done it with a Tennessee red wine. Uh, we've we've put out rye at a at, at cast strength uh, for people to try. We've gone to the barrels that had hardly any drops of liquid left in them. That's angel share was so high that normally they would have probably been blended off into something and, and gone away. We concentrated them down and let people try what I call these honey drops that come out of the barrels that are holding very little liquid uh, when they get to the end of their life uh, and let people try it at 107 proof. Uh, So, yeah, so we're we're kind of playing around. It's just like I have an assistant master distiller who's uh, he's the grandson of Frank Bobo, who served as master distiller here back in the mid 60s up till late 80s. Uh, He's very passionate about Jack Daniels and he, he loves to innovate. Uh, so he and I can just kind of sit and just, you know, just bounce ideas off one another, see what sticks. So when it comes to the Tennessee tasters line, we've already done, I think five to date with the sixth one's about to come out, but we, we're going to release a couple of those a year. Uh, and we have already identified ideas that go all the way out to 2024, 2025, uh, of what we want to release in that space. Uh, and I know a lot of the riders that, that follow the industry have loved getting them. Uh, they're just because they're always a little bit of a surprise and, and they're different, uh, especially for Jack Daniels. You know, it's just ah, something I
0: want to try some to show,
1: to show a willingness to just to play a little bit. But there's but they're small runs and, uh, and and they're one of the more popular items when people come and take the tour here in Lynchburg. Uh, they can pick up, you know, we usually have at least two different offerings in there so they can grab a couple of different bottles uh, to take back home and try.
0: Wonderful stuff. I want to talk a little bit about the wonderful history of Tennessee whiskey. Like some people don't understand like why the Lincoln process exists. Mm. You explained that it it eliminates flocking so that you can ship it all over the world. It's never going to get cloudy. Even if it gets cold on the tanker trucks or whatever, the whiskey is going to be fine. And it creates that consistency. And But back in the day, coming out of Prohibition, that Lincoln County process was kind of like they originally were advertising as like pure Tennessee whiskey because there have been kind of a lot of like – not so good whiskeys out on the market during right. Prohibition. A lot of kind of shady right. stuff happening, so that created a consistency for the brand. But then you were just talking about how maybe using different carbons. So when you go to the distillery in Lynchburg, there's you guys have the the big piles of um, maple wood that mm-hmm. palace that you're burning down that you then put into those big um, you know filtration vats that are like going to sprinkle the whiskey down through that. But is that the only um, carbon filtration going on, or is there another carbon filtration going on other than just those stacks of the maple wood charcoal?
1: There's another one. So what we do is we we bring in hard sugar maple wood uh, in ricks. Uh, So that and a rick is just a measurement of wood. So a lot of people are familiar with the term a cord. You know, when you're buying firewood for a home, you can buy it by the cord.
0: Yeah. That fits in the back of your truck and it goes yeah. up about, it's four feet by, right? It's like, yeah, but, I grew up but, in a, a rig and I know what a cord is.
1: Yeah. So there's, but there's two ricks in a cord. Most people don't know that that's sort of the unit of measure. So uh, we buy it in ricks pre-stacked, you know, two inch by two inch by 48 inches long. um, And it takes us about 16 ricks or eight cords of, of hard sugar maple wood to be burned. We, we, use as an accelerant, our own 140 proof alcohol off our steel. So we, we put it under a pad that has a uh, an afterburner on it for air permitting so that we make sure that we're not like smoking up uh, the atmosphere. It uh, keeps it very clean, but we'll spray 140 proof Jack Daniels off of our steel uh, onto hard sugar maple wood and ignite it and let it burn uh, pretty much until all the live flames die down on it. When you just have glowing embers of wood, then we'll, we'll quench that, let it cool. We'll grind it down to a consistency of a quarter inch or so, and uh, then we'll hand compact it into vats that the vats are actually 14 feet tall, and we're going to put 10 feet of wood uh, in it as a as a wow. um, hard sugar maple charcoal. So this is the first filtration step that we do at Jack Daniel's, okay? and it's and it is that step of, of charcoal mellowing is what it, you know is what it's referred to or Lincoln County process that from from a state law perspective because there is a Tennessee whiskey law that's been written. Uh, that defines what one uh, is. But in the in the shortest definition, a Tennessee whiskey is a bourbon produced in the state of Tennessee that has been mellowed before the barrel. Uh, and, and hard maple wood is the preferred wood. Now, what happens to the distillate as it goes through there? Coming off the still, uh, Jack Daniels has a character that's much more bourbon like um, bourbons are at least 51 percent corn and corn has a pretty distinct nose. Um, so when you when you smell the distillate, if you've ever had like a jar of moonshine, a lot of times you'll smell it and it has like almost like a corn oil, uh, you know, very grainy aroma to it. Yeah. And Jack Daniels would be no different. It's it's pretty clean, but there's a distinct nose that you would describe as some, smelling like people. Some people describe it as they can smell yeast or it smells like bread, uh, but it's grainy. Uh, when you put it in the mouth, it has a little bit of an oily mouthfeel, uh, It has some fatty acids in it that kind of kind of fatten the mouth feel on it a little bit. And then when you swallow it, almost all the flavor of the raw distillate is in the back of the throat, which is in the bitter zone. So I was talking about that earlier, that corn is a sweet grain, but it tends to mask its own sweetness up with a lot of bitter elements. And it needs some help to alleviate that. Now, if you look at historical documents about bourbon, they, they would say that one of the chief benefits of, of the distillate going into the barrel to mature it was that the barrel would soften its bitter edge or some some phrasing of that rationale as to why yeah. it was important. And there were other benefits to the barrel, but that was one of the chief ones. What Jack Daniels was learning and other distillers in this area with this Lincoln County process is that uh, there are ways to get rid of the bitterness of the distillate um, other than just the barrel. And, and I would tell you that 10 feet of charcoal, because you get so much exposure and you have so much absorptive power on it, that when you pass the distillate through, when you're going from the top of a vat to the bottom of a vat, you're going from being a bourbon to being a Tennessee whiskey by law. Um, mm. But it's removing things that are bitter on the palate. So mm-hmm. when you get to the bottom, it has a cleaner mouthfeel. It is, It moves from the back of the tongue to the, to the tip of the tongue. It moves it out to the sweet zone. Uh, so it sweetens the whiskey, uh, not by adding a sweetener, but by absorbing bitterness. And when you remove the bitterness, you reveal that underlying sweet character. So that's the great benefit that it provides, and it, and it creates a unique starting point uh, of our liquid before we ever get to the barrel. Uh, so then of course, it, at least as Jack Daniels goes, we're in a toasted and charred barrel. Being in a new charred barrel is what's required for, for any bourbon, uh, but mm-hmm. toasting uh, is a proprietary process that we've developed for our barrel. But I, I often describe, if you're if you're comparing toasting to charring and what benefits do you get out of each of those as individual processes, we're using an American white oak Uh, And the American white oak is a very sugar rich form of oak, but it has but sugars are very simple. I I describe it as if you've eaten a a marshmallow out of a bag. It's puff sugar. It's sweet, but it doesn't have much flavor or character. It's just it's just simple sweet. Now you can take a marshmallow to a campfire. And once you get to the campfire, there's two ways to do it. You can stick it into the fire and let it catch fire and you can pull it back and blow it out. And when you taste that marshmallow versus the raw one, you'll notice that you've added flavor to it, but those flavors are semi-bitter. And and that's the same thing that charring is going to do. It's going to open up your color layer. It's going to put an oak finish on it. But these are flavors that fall in the back of the throat where all your bitter taste buds tend to be, on the back of the tongue and the back of the throat. But a lot of people would say, hey, it, it takes a little longer. You might even have to send your knuckles to do it. But don't burn the marshmallow. Put it in the heat above the fire and slowly turn it and brown it. Uh, And when you do that, you're you're toasting the sugars, you're not charring them and you're going to develop more sweet complexities. You're going to minimize bitterness when you do that. So in the case of a white oak, this is where you can extract the vanilla, the caramel, the butterscotch. So this is building sweet complexities uh, into those wood sugars. So we do both processes. We toast and then we char. But that's what gives us that sweet to oaky range. It gives us a very what if there is a signature character to Jack Daniels, I would describe it as being vanilla and caramel. It has this rich, sweet tip. I don't even, if somebody serves me something other than Jack Daniels, I don't have to even swallow it to know if it's Jack Daniels or not, because Jack Daniels kind of tells what, you know, it kind of shows itself on the tip of the tongue. And then of course there's a little bit of a banana nose. It's I think very distinctive about us as well, but that's our, that's our yeast yeast culture more than our barrel. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah. So putting all that together, you know, I think makes for a very unique and distinct liquid. And um But then after we've been in the barrel, you come out of the barrel anywhere from 128 to 138 proof. If you're going to bottle it 80, 86, 90, you're going to basically correct the proof down uh, to agreed upon market proof that your label supports. That's legal. That's listed Mm -hmm. and all that. When you do that reduction after the barrel, then there's there's things that are soluble in alcohol that are not in water. And those tend to want to come out of solution. That's where carbon comes in. Uh, Carbon, you can you can chill filter if you want to. Uh, but a lot of people don't like whiskeys that are chill filter because it seemed to, they're, they're uh, more broad spectrum, I call it. So yeah. yes, they will stabilize the liquid so it doesn't cloud up when it gets cold. But they might also take color and other flavor and mouthfeel elements away from it. So you'll notice a difference uh, that it's altered, that it's taken maybe more than it's given uh, in the process. But carbons can be sourced from a lot of different things. They have different properties. You can go... Mesopore, macro micropore, micro they have all these different sources of carbon and have different receptor site sizes. So you can get things that you can pull things out that are going to come out of solution and cloud the product, but not remove a lot of color or flavor or mouthfeel. So that's wow. what you want to do. Yeah. So you want to work with carbons that basically retain as much of your uh, character out of the barrel as possible, but don't don't scare people when they get a bottle that's been across the North Atlantic uh, and spent a month on uh, you know at sub-zero temperatures. Uh, by looking at the product and thinking that there was a filtration failure or something was wrong with it, that it's that it's polluted. So there's sort of a trade-off there. But you know, carbon is definitely uh, that type of technology and development. I'll, I'll, you'll see a lot of products that mark themselves as non-chill filtered. If you especially if you look in the um in the Scott Space right. what they're uh-huh. that's what they're, the
0: key. That's the key right there then, huh?
1: Yeah. What what they, what they don't want to tell you is that they're carbon filtering. But that right. is the preferred. If they're going to filter, that's the preferred mechanism, I think, for most people because they know that that's retaining the bulk of the barrel's character, uh, and it, and for for all the benefits you're gaining on clarity uh, and, and sort of uh, cleaning up uh, the product, um, you're not you're not removing a lot of the yeah, other benefits that happen barrel. Oh, oh. Yeah. So, so uh, industry insider knowledge there.
0: That's I was talking to Dave Pudlow, who was uh, one of the heads of education down at Maker's Mark, and he's like yeah. an encyclopedic. Yeah. knowledge of of whiskey and what last time I was at the distillery we were buying some uh Maker's 46 the private select we were selecting staves and doing the the finishing and but uh I was asking Dave and I I wanted I was trying to dig into it, but he was leading a tour or he was teaching a bunch of whiskey teachers and didn't have time to talk to me he's like filtration filtration you know <laughs> and I was I was like wait Dave wait you know but,
1: um, you know, I, I would ta- I would say ta- ta- this you know and, and I think a lot of your whiskey purists want your unfiltered and uncut product um our uh, like our, our single barrel barrel proof uh, because it's coming out of the barrel and into the bottle at the same proof it gets uh, a, a, just a light what I would describe screening filtration done to it um so you really get the the maximum benefit of the barrel there's there's nothing you know there's not a i I, I say a perceivable difference between what I taste directly out of the barrel and what I will see after we've kind of screened the solids, getting the sticks and stones out of it, you yeah. know, kind of what you're doing, just so you don't have any any loose char flying around in the bottle. Yeah. Um, but a lot a lot of your what I describe as your biggest, you know, whiskey aficionados, they want the sticks and the stones. They want to see the barrel char. They want you know the unfiltered product. Pieces we have of a charcoal on the
0: bottom of their bottle.
1: We have we haven't done that t- yet. Uh, but it's, I, I, definitely think that there's, you know, like I said, I, I have the distiller's privilege. I can go and just take a sample out of a barrel, char and all, and, and chew the whiskey if I need to. Uh, but you know, if, if everybody was okay with it, understood whiskey and wasn't afraid of flock, you, you clearly would back off on any of those filtration steps, but, uh, you, you want to try to meet the customer's expectations and not scare them. Um, mm-hmm. because you know, wh- which whiskey from a, a chemical, um, liquid standpoint is considered a colloidal suspension so it has a lot of dissolved solids in it and and it's, it's solubility changes with temperature uh, so uh, you have things that are alcohol soluble that are not water soluble so yeah, i can take a, a glass of barrel proof completely clear uh, and if you start to put some water in it you'll you'll see the whiskey start to cloud up because yeah. you're starting to bring some of its solids out of solution and i always say the faster it clouds That's good news, guys, because that means you've got a ton of character, a ton of solid
0: flavor and fats. in there.
1: Absolutely. So if I if if I drop an ice cube in a glass and I see the whiskey cloud on it, I'm like, this is going to be good. This is high character. Yeah, Um, that's yeah. If it it starts to dilute and it stays really clear, uh, that means that, you know, it's probably been a little bit too aggressively filtered. So it's a balancing act that you have Mm -hmm. there. So You're retaining as much of your character and color as you can, but also making sure the product stays clear to every market.
0: Now, is there is it possible to do – you talk about macro-pore and micro-pore uh, carbon. It, would it be possible to make a designer carbon that you could like, I don't know, shoot it with some kind of lasers or make it so that it only pulled out a certain flavor like and left everything else? But it was like you just kind of modify – because carbon is a super dense structure. You can It's yeah. got a lot of facets to it yeah. literally. And yeah. so would there be a way to shape and make your own kind of custom carbon? Well,
1: you know, because, you know, carbon is produced by uh, by natural processes uh, and it's basically by decomposing certain organic materials. Um, he, he's so,
0: smiling right now. People can't see this, but he liked the idea of me shooting lasers into <laughs> carbon to create a carbon <laughs> flavor profile.
1: What you what you find is that you really don't have to do any of those types of steps on it, because when you change the organic matter that you're kind of decomposing and making carbon out of, it automatically produces these certain characteristics for you. Uh, the, the its receptor sites, its pore sizes, and things will change uh, when the material that you're you're sourcing it from changes. So you, you just need to be thoughtful about you know you can take um, you know pecan and coconut walnut shells and stuff like that, and you can make carbon out of it. Um, you can you can you can find coal based uh, like you know earth based carbon, uh, and each one has benefits um so but you can you know you're asking you know can you do designer carbons yes people that are in that carbon space based on what you're trying to do uh, have ones that are designed to do what you want to do uh if you if you've been in the industry i mean as long as we have you know we kind of know the range of, of carbons that are appropriate uh, to use for us we know ones that will tend to take off bitterness um you know if there is a is an alteration of flavor it tends to kind of absorb some bitter notes out of it. And sometimes that's a, that's a beneficial thing is that the, the, the filtered sample actually has a better mouthfeel and is, is more palatable than, you know, what it started to be uh, without it. So, you know, you can, you can, I guess you can, you can improve the product or you can harm it uh, based on your carbon choices. So, um, that's where 154 years of, <laughs> uh, of experience comes in handy. because uh, so we kind of know what's out there and what we can use and, um, Besides, besides being masters of, uh, of charcoal mellowing and making our own charcoal there, uh, I, I think we've made some very thoughtful choices about how we filter the product. So we're giving people uh, the the full range of advantages that it has. The product's going to be clear, but it's still going to have great color and great character. Uh, and, and if they if they put it in their refrigerator, it shouldn't look like a snow globe.
0: You know, <laughs> that's, that's right. It. Yeah. Oh well, man, that's great stuff. And I definitely want to talk to you about. Do you guys sell your single barrels of rye yet? Do you have a a, a program for bars we, we to be just, able to buy yeah, single barrels yeah. of rye? We sh-
1: we okay. have just started doing that. We okay. we have not offered we have not offered the ryes uh, in that personal collection at barrel proof yet. Uh, we have put out a batch at barrel proof for people to try, uh, and I think once people have that, that's probably going to make some demand for that too. Oh, yeah. Uh, I not so. just want to come and say, well, you know, I think the 94 proof uh, rye single barrel is just phenomenal. I, I love it. I, I just like I said, it's it's a perfect balance of being bold and spicy, uh, but also being settled enough that it doesn't need to be. In a, you don't have to add sweeteners and bitters into it uh, and make a cocktail out of it necessarily. It, it would make a great cocktail, but it doesn't need to be um, a, a drop of water, an ice cube and it's ready to go. Um, but I, I think probably the next evolution of rye for us in that single barrel format would be when customers would come, we would allow them to come to Lynchburg and then they could thief up some whiskey out of several different barrels, uh, try them all at cast strength, 128, 138, whatever, you know, whatever it is, is what it is. Uh, and, and, and whatever it is, is what you'll get. Uh, that's what I love about the barrel proof is it's a little bit of a, um, it's, it's not just different lights and different warehouses and different um, barrels, but it's different proofs. So you're seeing the full range of, of nuances that happen across our process
0: uh, and deciding for yourself unique. what's your favorite. Yes. Okay. Love it. Well, I want to definitely sign us up for some of those. And now, you guys just had – going coming into this whole coronavirus thing, you guys had a big one-two punch down there in Tennessee. There were like tornadoes swirling through, and then all of a sudden, the, like the very next day down there in Nashville, they were having like your first COVID – cases were popping up. So you guys have been in lockdown for six, seven weeks now, like everybody else. How is that going? Are you guys helping out with uh, creating hand sanitizer? Because there's like this national dearth of people being able to get the, you know, the first responders, the hospitals, there's not enough hand sanitizer. You guys can make alcohol and a hell of a lot of it really quick. Are (laughs) you contributing to making sanitizer (laughs) and stuff?
1: We are. So we, we we suspended tours here back on March the 16th and we have not given one since and we have not uh, set a date for when we would start to allow those again. A lot of that's going to have uh, to do with whatever guidance we have uh, as, you know, being um, you know, offering tours to the public and whatever they're telling us is required to keep the public safe. Um, right now, we have to put people on buses, uh, take them up you know, from the visitor center up onto the tour. It's hard to keep people separated and keep them together. Uh, And as an operating facility, you kind of have to you need to keep people together to keep them safe. Uh, And if we can't keep them together uh, and then prevent them from spreading the virus to one another, then we probably can't give tours. Uh, So we've been working from home. You know, I've I've done we have a podcast that's called Around the Barrel uh, that we kind of cover what's going on at Jack Daniels. So I gave a lot of the details of what we were doing uh, to that if people wanted to check it out. Uh, But yes, we we we're like everyone else. We struggled to find sanitizer. There was a run on it. Uh, Here, But being an alcohol manufacturer at least uniquely positions you to have that component uh, of of a sanitizer available to you. So we made up our own version using peroxide and glycerin and following that World Health Organization recipe of how you make a sanitizer. We made some uh, and we had our employees who often would be working over in the visitor center, dealing with the public, uh, helping us bottle those, label those, uh, ensuring that all of our employees had enough. Uh, as we made enough to cover our employees and keep them safe, we moved out into nursing homes and first responders and hospitals, and uh, started giving it uh, as much as we could afford to give. We were very generous with it and just donated it uh, to different groups that met certain um, priority criteria that we had set. Uh, we recognized very quickly, though, that we're best at making alcohol. We're not necessarily, you know, making little small plastic bottles that have spray tops is not what we typically do at Jack Daniels and. We threw a lot of labor at it to get some done, but the the way we could help, you know, answer the shortage, uh, the best way would be to make alcohol and find a sanitizer company who could take that in and just make it in massive quantities. So uh, we were we were lucky enough. We found two companies. Uh, one is in uh, just north of or just south of Nashville. The other one is in North Georgia. Uh, the two fairly you know respectable, well known uh, sanitizer companies, and they're taking our bulk alcohol, and we've given up. Every every spare uh, piece of our capacity at the distillery has gone into making alcohol for hand sanitizer. So we're we're considered an essential business. We um, our stillage feeds local cattle. If we shut the distillery down, we'd have cattle starving in the fields around us. So that's part of the food chain. Wow,
0: I didn't uh, know that. So that.
1: that 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 kind of gave us an essential business distinction. Uh, but now that we're making a lot of alcohol, about I'd say 20, 20 to twenty five thousand gallons a day. Uh, are leaving here and, and, and four tankers from the two different locations, and they're making sanitizer and returning it back to us. We're buying back from them uh, enough to to meet our demand for our employees and also to continue to make donations uh, to first responder agencies. So, so far, so good. Uh, we, we've done everything we could to help. And, uh, we're of course, we're hoping that the virus ends. We want to reopen Lynchburg. We We love having people come from all over the world uh, to see us and see what we do here. We love to show the place off. Um, it's been kind of eerie. I mean, normally I, I'm sitting in my office right now and I have a large window to the right of me here. Uh, normally I see groups go by 25, 30 people at a time and I can look out and tell they've come from all over the world. You know, they stick pins on a, on a world map over at the visitor center. And I think, it, you know, 300,000 people were sold in 170 countries. And I would say at least half those countries have visited here before. Um so, and and that's a, a great privilege that we have to be able to host people from all over the world. And it really that's been we've we've actually survived the virus pretty well in this county where we're located. Mm-hmm. I think they've tested one hundred twenty people. We only have three people who've tested positive. All of our employees, none of our employees are are testing positive. Uh, so we've been able to keep everyone safe and, and hopefully help out uh, during this.
0: Yeah. And there's been a lot of um, industry sponsorship of. Uh, aid programs for like laid off bartenders and hospitality yep. workers. I know that like there's a the restaurant workers relief fund. Were you guys involved in some of these uh, trying to help out folks who are in the service industry or in hospitality who are uh, now out of work, but are people who help sell your your whiskey? You know.
1: Yeah. You were talking about the you know the when the, the tornadoes came through here. They hit Nashville and Cookville, which are to the north of us, and then we had a smaller one that went through Chattanooga, which is to the south of us. So we've literally Dodged, you know, two bullets uh, from a weather standpoint just this spring. Um, so we had we had announced that so we, we had donated about one hundred thousand dollars to tornado relief up in Nashville. And then after the, the virus hit, um, our parent company is Brown Foreman uh, based out of Louisville, Kentucky. So under for Jack Daniels, for Woodford Reserve, for Finlandia Vodka, for Erdura Tequilas, the, our portfolio, we made a million dollar donation to the, uh, the relief fund. For all the displaced workers that work in our industry, uh, trying to help out. So yes, we're we've made a a very substantial donation uh, to help with uh, employment relief and you know paycheck relief for folks.
0: Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day. You guys have a lot going on there, Um, and thanks for all that you do for uh, putting the sanitizer out there and for giving aid to all the folks who are currently you know what the something crazy. 50% of folks in the country are now underemployed or have had a substantial impact on their, um, you
1: know. know, I'm at least seeing some glimmers of hope. You know, I know every state's going to follow its own guidance based on, you know, what's going on there. But at least the state of Tennessee has announced that restaurants can begin to reopen. Uh, They're asking them to keep people, to seat maybe every other table, keep distance between groups, Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're allowed to operate at 50% of capacity, which is for most of them probably enough. Uh, it's not so restrictive that they can't operate uh, and get back in business. So we're hoping that Tennessee starts to reopen. And I know some of the states around us are following a similar timeline to us, while others are still very reluctant to do it. But I just I just really hope and pray that everyone makes it through this. Uh, yeah. you know, stay sound, stays healthy, That's
0: that they can come the out of this
1: employed, and that we can rebound quickly as a country and as a people and be smarter for it. You know, I think think we've all learned a lot. Uh, I've never worried about a flu season uh, so much. I've gotten flu shots in the past, but I never really kind of lived in fear about, you know, the person standing next to me and whether they were coughing or sneezing. uh, That's right. What kind of risk that that might pose to me. But, um, you know, I think the world's changed. Uh, And I hope, like I said, that we're smarter, but but it doesn't ruin the ability to socialize uh, because some of these restrictions make it feel, you know, a a lot less – uh, friendly
0: <laughs> I feel you man well great stuff this is yeah. going to be a great podcast thanks for joining yeah. us and when this is all over please come and visit us out in LA and we'll do a whiskey society where we can actually drink this has been a coffee talk session <laughs> I haven't had a drop of whiskey yeah. and I can, t- I can tell you very assuredly that I don't think we've ever done a whiskey society podcast in which I wasn't drinking something so, well, well,
1: I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you guys, and I look forward to a time when we can travel again. And hopefully, I will be out there before too much longer. But I uh, just stay well, and uh, uh, just thoughts and prayers for all of your listeners.
0: Yeah, same to you, and same to all your folks out there. Okay. Thank you, Jeff Arnett, Master Distiller from Jack Daniel's, the best-selling American whiskey in the world. Thanks for taking the time. We really appreciate it, man. Stay healthy, stay safe, stay home. All right. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you like what you heard, please head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating and review. The Spirit Guide Society is a Spirit Adventures production in association with Bitten from the Apple Productions. Special thanks to Tone Mesa for their post-production and audio services. The show is produced by Andrew Apple and me, Pedro Shanahan. Executive producer, Andrew Abrahamson. Be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Spirit Guide SOC. We'll be there to answer any questions you have, share what we're drinking, and more.